civilization was produced by this sense of a shared history, shared past, common ancestry, and living, you know, accordingly. It's that simple. Hi, welcome to Volition. Volition is a series of interviews with people operating at the intersection of art, entrepreneurship, and intellectual production. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Michael Bonner. Michael is currently a Director of Policy to the Ministry of Public and Business Service Delivery of Ontario. He is also an independent historian who has published a number of books, including most recently, The Last Empire of Iran, which details the extent and importance of the Sasanian Empire. He has a new book that we talk a bit about in this episode called In Defense of Civilization, How Our Past Can Renew Our Present, that's set for release in April of next year. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Michael Bonner. So when I was researching for this episode, uh, I read on your site that you speak English and French fluently. And I think that you also studied Near Eastern languages as part of your education. Uh, So I was wondering, how many languages do you speak? How many do I actually speak? Well, let's let's start with what I've actually studied. So, uh, you know, from the very beginning, I had French. Um, I started to get into Latin and Greek, you know, sometime before the age of ten, and then did it all through, uh, did both all through school, and then I did uh, in high school. Uh, Spanish, uh, French, and German, and in university, Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac, Coptic, Sanskrit, and um, Persian and Arabic. In in uh, uh, graduate school, they forced me to learn Armenian classical Armenian. And I did. But by that point, I think I had sort of run out of <coughs> run out of sort of language learning Jews. But obviously, no one can claim to really speak, you know, most of these, you know, I don't, I don't speak Coptic, I, and I don't even really read it in, anymore. Um, you know, I, 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 I passed my exams, and, and that was sort of it. I can have a conversation in French, uh, well, I'm more than just a conversation in French, uh, German, you know, very little bit of Spanish still, and I can get by in modern Persian and modern uh, Arabic. I don't know any Arabic dialects. I did the classical language. So, you know, I get talking to somebody, so, you know, the person will say, you know, you kind of sound like the Quran or something like that. Which is not necessarily good, but um, you know, I I I would not be able to claim that I could carry on a conversation in you know biblical Hebrew or or you know imperial Aramaic or classical Syriac or um, uh, or Sanskrit. Although oh, sorry, I forgot one. 
<laughs> in, my, in my first year, I did Middle Egyptian. So, you know, um, no, no conversations there either. But that, that was a fascinating one. So hieroglyphic and, and, and all the rest of it. So you obviously have some kind of penchant for languages. How did you uh, figure that out? Like, what, how did you kind of realize that? And uh, why did you continue down that path? Well, how did I realize it? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've always, you know, my, my earliest memories are always having had an interest in language. Um, not just the sound of, you know, the spoken word or what have you, but uh, I really was drawn to grammar and the, the structure of, of languages. I thought that Latin was really interesting because it was so, it struck me as very orderly and, and a well sort of organized um, machine. You know, once you got the, once you got the rules down and how words, word forms change and so forth, it, it, you know, you, you would construct sentences that were very sort of, uh, it, it seemed to me solid and very easy to, uh, you know, high, highly intelligible, very easy to understand, but also easy to write nonsense so that it would be, it would be very, very difficult to create any kind of ambiguity or, um, you know, sort of, it's a contrast with English where you can sort of just gum words together and, you know, almost, you know, mo most people will understand what you say. Can't do that in Latin. And as a young person, I just, I found that very interesting, fascinating. Um, <clears throat> my, um, you know, I don't know, my parents were journalists. They read, they read the news on the, on, on the airwaves. So, you know, the household was sort of full of uh, lots of emphasis on pronunciation and the sound of language and so forth. Um, but it was, it was Latin. Uh, it, being introduced to it, I think, by a couple of, uh, you know, parents or friends who had studied it. And, you know, my dad, he had done a bit of Latin in school. Um, that's what really got it going. Just the, 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 the appearance of, a, of an orderly, well-structured language. And, you know, from a young age, I felt that I couldn't get enough of it. Now, not all the languages I studied are like that, obviously, but um, still, it was... Uh, um, you know, it, it, it gave me a foundation of a deep knowledge of grammar that I could apply to, to other stuff, if that makes sense, or other, other languages. No, it, it makes total sense. It's, um, I think that that structural element of language is, uh, a, it's a very beautiful hook for the study of language generally. Uh, and it, it, I imagine that a similar love of that kind of structural uh kind of underlying structure that comes forth in the events of the language is similar perhaps to the interest in us in the structure underlying the events of history perhaps it, it, am i making a leap there or certainly yeah i think that there is a link especially through the common medium of the text right mm. historiography is 
you know, you could argue, I guess, that at, at the ultimate root of it, or like the, the, the most basic building block of it is something like philology or grammar. Mm. And then if you want, you know, that can obviously be taken to an extreme. If, you know, I suppose there are still people who think that once you have understood the grammar of something that that's, that's proof that you understand it, right? And that there were people who thought that once you understand the text, you understand what has happened, but you can actually go even deeper than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you are a uh, independent historian. Um, and I, I really want to ask you some questions about that later. I, I'm particularly interested in some of uh, your views on what it takes to be a historian, but uh, you also are, I believe I'm going to get this title correct. You're currently the director of policy to the minister of public and business service delivery That's right. uh, for Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're in these two worlds of history and public policy. Um, you, you, you talked a little bit about your educational um, kind of journey, but how, how did you end up in this policy world? <laughs> well, I, I should add to that, that I'm not what you would, I'm not a civil servant. I am a political aide. So what I do is supplementary to what civil servants do. Uh, and I serve the crown through the, the minister that you just mentioned by providing that, you know, extra level of political analysis on top of public policy. I got into this, I mean, I've always had an interest in, in politics sort of on the side. Long ago, if you had asked me, you know, would this be my fate? I probably would never have thought so. Uh, and I got into it through a series of coincidences. At the end of my doctorate, I was, I guess you could say I was on track for some, some kind of academic post and I was a visiting scholar at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and I had been there for just a few months and um, I sort of wondering what I was going to do next one one possible fate would have been to stay there and to um, you know get some kind of junior position there or maybe somewhere else uh, but uh, I wrote uh, a letter to every Canadian federal minister just introducing myself. So I thought maybe I'll come back to Canada one day. And, um, you know, I attached my CV and I said, you know, if I could be of any service somehow, <laughs> you know, let me know. And then um, I had some very polite responses saying that you know uh, you know note had been taken or something like that and mm. but one of them offered me a job and this was um jason kenny who at the time was the minister of um, citizenship and immigration and former premier of alberta in more recent days and uh you know i went through interviews and whatever and uh, 
he made me a, a senior policy advisor. And, you know, it was quite change, uh, I'll admit. I, no one was more shocked than I was. But uh, it's a, it was an opportunity that I couldn't turn down, which meant that, you know, it's, I guess it's one of those examples in life where you have to choose to go one way or the other. And I chose to return to Canada after what seemed like a long absence. And it meant giving up on any, uh, any academic career, effectively. Hmm. And I haven't, you know, I've often wondered since then, you know, what life might have been like otherwise, but I've not really looked back. And um, it's now 10 years, 10 years in, in politics. I've worked in the federal government, in the provincial opposition, and now in the provincial government in a couple of different roles, sort of different, different uh, bosses of all different types. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been good. And I feel as though it hasn't, uh, you know, in some ways I didn't have to choose between um, that, this sort of career and uh, writing history, because I still do, still write history. In, in, in some ways it's given me, you know, somewhat more freedom, not having to deal with the administrative elements of, academia but of course i can't i don't have a counterfactual so but that's how it happened weird coincidences and and um well what were you expecting when you sent this email i mean that's a that's a pretty bold move right to send out an email like that to all those politicians like did you have an idea of like what might happen well First of all, it, it was actually a letter. It was a real letter. And, um, hmm. <clears throat> you know, amongst my friends who like to make fun of me, the, 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 it was a typed letter, but in their, the way they tell it, it, you know, it was kind of, they, they, they reimagined it as a sort of a handwritten letter with a goose quill and ink. It wasn't like that. It was just a type, a, a typed letter. But uh, what did I expect to happen? Nothing. I mean, I was very, uh, I was very surprised that something did come out of it. But it was, uh, I, you know, I, I was cynical about it. I thought that this, you know, it was probably worth a shot. I, being abroad, I had sent out hundreds of applications to all kinds of jobs here and there. And, you know, I had, I had got some, but you know, very few in comparison with what I had applied for, which is all, always the case, of course. But uh, you know, it was at the height of the um, last uh, financial crisis. Not really a good time to be trying to get a job. Um, I didn't. I, I didn't think that anything in particular would come of it. But I, I mean, I was pleasantly uh, surprised that that something did. And so you've now been doing this kind of policy work for. Uh, 10 years mm -hmm. and I, I'm just very ignorant around what policy work looks like I obviously have some kind of idea in my head but I bet I bet it's really wrong and so how would you describe the world of policy work like 
I, I wonder what like the career progression looks like. I wonder what the um, kind of dynamics of it are. I, yeah, I, I just really have no idea. Well, policy people who work on the political side lead you know precarious and, and <laughs> dangerous lives uh, because we can be we are not subject to um, normal labor uh, labor laws or HR uh, rules. We can be um, you know it's very easy to hire bring on board whoever you like. Uh, but it's very easy to fire people too, and you can be you know you can be sacked for any particular reason or no reason or anything, and you know that's it. Um, you know that sort of thing tends not to happen, but that's just the way. That's just the way it is. Um, so, uh, what do we do? Well, there is of course. You know, a civil administration, a civil service that runs various ministries. You know, that tend, that's fairly universal, and they, you know, will specialize in some particular field. You know, there'll, there'll be a, a ministry of um, you know, public works or uh, health. And, that sort of thing in most places, and it's staffed by specialists, by by experts who you know run various aspects of it. Minister, um, it's functions so forth. But at the top of it is normally an elected, um, an elected uh, person who has to take um, you know ultimate responsibility for the activities of the ministry, like I guess a CEO or um, some other similar officer somewhere. And, um, you know, he or she will have the power to direct the, uh, the activities of the ministry according to, um, you know, political uh, platform on which the party in question is elected. And this person needs uh, staff to help with that, not only to direct the uh, uh, officials on the um, behalf of the minister, but also to you know communicate whatever needs to be said from them to him or her, and to provide uh, a political lens, as they say, a political analysis on the policy proposals that are brought forward by um, by the officials of the ministry. I think that's a fairly universal mm-hmm. uh, practice. Uh, or, or structure uh, in, in I guess, most uh, G7 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, what may be unique to, you know, Commonwealth realms would be the structure of cabinet and the relations amongst the various um, ministers through something called in, in, in Ontario, it's called the Cabinet Office. I think in the UK, it's called the Cabinet Office. Actually, I'm sure it is. Uh, federally, in Canada, it's called the Privy Council Office. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Just is. And, you know, part of the role of a policy advisor will, will be to help with that relationship by sharing information or by briefing colleagues on um, 
you know, whatever mm. one's boss uh, has in mind or, you know, providing the view of the boss to others who have different bosses, who have different ideas of various things, and to help prepare everyone for a cabinet uh, meeting, which would be the, you know, the highest decision-making body, okay. as far as I know, everywhere. So exactly what that looks like on a day-to-day basis, you know, it's somewhat hard to predict, somewhat hard to describe. Uh, anything the government says or does is technically policy. So exactly what is going to be at the top of the agenda at a given time can be totally unpredictable. Yeah. So one has to be flexible and you know willing to um, work with other people. And you know it helps to have a certain experience of, I mean, obviously you have to be acquainted with what it is that your party wants to achieve. That's essential, but it helps to have some experience of life and so forth. But unlike unelected uh, bureaucrats who are specialists and experts in a particular field, you know, we are generalists and we look at, you know, we look at things politically instead of, you know, operationally or, or you know, yeah. from a perspective of feasibility or something like that. Yeah, no that that makes that makes total sense. Um, this is maybe a, a, a my own personal interest. I don't know how interesting this will be to either you or to the listeners. But um, when you're doing these preparations, so you're preparing um, kind of information or briefing broader parts of um, kind of I guess the cabinet and um, the, these kinds of um, you know, creating and sharing information. I'm, I'm genuinely interested. Is this, are you doing, are you creating like PowerPoints and this is like a presentation? <laughs> is this like um, large scale briefing documents? If they're documents, do they look more like emails or long memos or are they like large, like policy binders that kind of go mm. through like, I, I'm, yeah, I'm like, what, what is the kind of like work output in terms of these artifacts look like? Um, that is a very good question. Um, there's a lot of PowerPoint, believe mm. it or not, which is uh, both good and bad. Um, it's important to have a uniform structure for these documents, just so that people can, you know, uh, you know, so there's something like universal standards so everybody can understand. Uh, PowerPoint provides a lot of that for, you know, bullet points or sort of brief and, and ideally, well, ideally brief and ideally clear presentation of or exposition of what the policy is and what it is meant to achieve or that kind of thing. Um, but there's also, there, there are also longer documents that, that are analyses of, you know, deep, deeper analyses of, of, of what the policy is whether there are other options that were considered apart from the one that is recommended or, you know, other potential ways to achieve the same kind of end. Um, communications questions as to how, whether and how to explain the thing to um, the public and, and when to do so, um, as well as, I mean, obviously, like far more basic things too, like the financial implications or the, um, 
constitutional questions as to you know some you know sometimes there's some question as to whether the thing is even fully legal or not you know, mm -hmm. that, that will come up or whether it would survive you know something potentially controversial would survive a constitutional challenge or um, things of that nature which you know obviously you know that's I think rarely would you see something that would be destined to fail and uh, you know if if that were the outcome you know someone like me would say well maybe we shouldn't do this or you know obvious stuff like that uh in ottawa ontario is different in in ottawa there would be these huge um you know long um eight and a half uh, not eight and a half of them but the sort of legal sized mm -hmm. papers that would it would be the, the so-called memorandum to to cabinet, right? And the and the and the presentation would, uh, you know, the actual presentation would would be done on PowerPoint, and there would be a huge binder of supplemental information, like question questions and answers, and, and talking points, and all, all the rest of it. And you know, someone someone would have to go and make sure that was all in order and. Possibly, you know, more likely than not, to edit the the uh, the talking points and the questions and so forth to make them, you know, perhaps flow better or sort of attune them to the minister's speaking style. Um, make sure that they are presented in a way that would, uh, you know, calculated to win over the most, you know, the largest number of people. That's sort of mm -hmm. in Ontario. It's a bit less. Uh, you know, the, the information is is uh, copious, but it's a it's a bit less. Uh, uh, what's the word? There's just a little bit less of it. It's it's not it's not quite and 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 not quite so formal. But um, of course, I was in Ottawa a long time ago. It may, it may have changed, but it's still in in principle, it's basically the same kind of same kind of thing. That all makes sense. Uh, switching gears slightly, uh, I noticed in your last book, uh, The Last Empire of Iran, uh, you have an acknowledgement to Tom Holland uh, mm. near the front. Uh, do you do you know? I assume you're like you, you know you know Tom Holland as part of like um, well like, I would love to know the backstory there. Like I, I recently read uh, Dominion and it was mm. just an incredible book. Like I I absolutely I was absolutely blown away by it. And so I'd I'd love to hear about where that acknowledgement came from how you've been influenced and and yeah what that relationship looks like okay well this is another sort of funny story uh or potentially rambling story long ago i came across um nasim talib on uh twitter mm -hmm. and he, you know I, I had i had been familiar with his book the the black swan and people were talking about it. financial uh, crash and so forth. But I, 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 I started paying attention because he, there was this feud with Mary Beard over silly cartoon that had appeared in, uh, on the BBC. And it was about Roman Britain. And of course, you know, it had, it was basically basically flying the flag for a sort of uh, you know and 
you know, immense antiquity to sort of Blairite immigration policies. Mm -hmm. And of course, no serious people dispute what you would call like the, you know, the variety or the, the diversity of, you know, persons in the Mediterranean world. And some of that spilled over into, you know, distant Roman Britain. It's true. The question was whether the depiction of the people in the cartoon was, as the cartoon itself said, typical of a British, of a Roman, of a Romano-British family. Now that can certainly be debated. Um, and of course, this then triggers this discussion amongst other people about, you know, uh, racism and you know the uh, appropriation of the of the ancient or the classical world by you know idiots online uh, screaming about whatever their you know particular issues, and I took Taleb's side in this debate and I wrote a piece about it. And I, uh, basically my argument was that this idea that so-called, uh, you know, the, basically the appropriation of classical figures like Cicero by later uh, Northern Europeans, effectively white people, uh, is entirely uh, wrong-headed and, and imaginary that Cicero being a Roman, you know, Mediterranean person, just, I'm just, I'm fixated on Cicero because he's a name, I guess people would know, that he would have more in common with someone living in North Africa in his own period or the Levant or an ancient Hittite or someone, you know, living in Southern Anatolia uh, of roughly the same period than he would have had with a native Briton. And that anyone who thinks otherwise is horribly confused. And, and there's just, this is a, a preposterous reimagining of Cicero or somebody as a sort of like Nordic type is, is just ridiculous. It's preposterous. And that the, the Mediterranean should be seen as something approaching a, a, you know, a cultural unit. Obviously, that's subject to some degree, but it's cer certainly more of a unit with itself than it was with Britain or, you know, uh, the uh, you know Europe across the Rhine where the barbarians lived. So I don't see any evidence for this idea of. Of like a of, of a cultural or or uh, um, or much less a sort of ethnic or like a racial continuity from the uh, you know the Germanic destroyers of the Roman Empire and the people who actually lived in it. So I made this argument and I said, just put all this aside, forget like just stop engaging in this silly debate. You won't find proof for, or, you know, uh, contemporary sort of you know multiculturalism in in any aspect of of the Roman state because they thought of these things differently. 
what you should do is you should expand your sense of what constitutes the legitimate study of the ancient world and of the classics. If you want to focus on people who were outside, say, the Roman metropolitan milieu or its politics and you know all of this stuff with Cicero and Caesar and everything, if you want to expand beyond that, you have ample opportunity to do so within the existing canon. You don't have to reject it. You can turn to, you know, the many, many great classical authors from North Africa or from uh, the Levant or the all sorts of non, uh, you, know, you know, people who did not grow up, I don't know what the right expression is, but people who did not grow up speaking Latin or Greek, who learned those languages later as a kind of literary uh literary mode of expression who uh, don't tend to get studied in, in, in a normal um, classical curriculum. Then I recommended, sorry, we will eventually get to Tom Holland. But th then I recommended that you also augment the notion of what constitutes a classical language. Mm -hmm. There is no, and I'm not, I didn't invent this, but the, you know, there is no excuse, I think. You can learn Latin and Greek. You can learn Aramaic. Aramaic is comparatively simpler. The uh, Greek, uh, the Greek heritage, is informed largely to, to to a degree which I think we still don't fully appreciate by uh, Near Eastern cultural models, which were brought to them by speakers of, of uh, you know, Aramaic or languages that were similar to Aramaic, such as the Phoenicians. And the Aramaic alphabet is the, the basis of the Greek alphabet. There are all kinds of Aramaic and other similarly Semitic words that have gone into Greek. The Iliad and the Odyssey are full of them. Um, you know, why not do that? You know, what is the reason not to? Um, it, 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 well, the reason not to is that there was some kind of prejudice against it of, of long-standing, which we should, which we should, you know, just dispense with. Um, then I recommended that our sense of what constitutes the ancient world or the classical past should also be expanded, and that it should include the the very ancient Near East because it was so informative on the. It was so uh, influential on what we think of as the classical world, you know, the influence of, of, of Egyptian and um, Mesopotamian mathematics on Pythagoras, for instance. Or, you know, where did Plato get his ideas from? He didn't make them up in most cases. You know, the, the, these, they all have much older antecedents, uh, which we should take seriously. Uh, but it should also go further in time. It should include things like Islam. It should include uh, the, you know, what we call uh, Byzantium. Maybe other things too. But certainly um, Islam. Arabic has as much a claim to to a sort of grand 
classical uh, heritage as anybody else does. And if you're willing to concede, as I think most people are, that you know what we call the Italian Renaissance is is very much a uh, you know uh, kind of byproduct of of, of uh, classical learning. What would you say about the you know far more uh, in, far more influential and successful um, interest in the classical past cultivated in the in the Abbasid Golden Age? Not only was that uh, very much based on the Greco-Roman heritage, but also on the Iranian one. So it has a sort of double, um, and to a lesser extent, there's, there's some Indian uh, Chinese influence, but there's the sort of two main pillars there, which, you know, why not pay attention to? Um, why not, why not, devote, why not <clears throat> look at something like the Quran with the same rigor as classical philologists do for you know their own texts so anyway i made this case i published it and uh put it online and then forgot about it you know and then uh tom holland found it he's and he 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 you know he tweeted sort of you know vigorous vehement agreement with with uh, you know at, at least part of it the, at mm-hmm. least the the part about um, studying Islam, which is what he himself did. I think his own his own intellectual formation was in uh, classics, and he expanded to other forms of history. But um, um, before his book Dominion, he had written an excellent one on the appearance of Islam, which uh, you know I read and I thought was great. So uh, we corresponded a little bit after that, and you know shared some uh, you know, sort of similar views on, on various things. Um, he sent me an early version of Dominion, which I had, had a look at. I was really out of my depth. Uh, uh, I was blown away by it, but, you know, I didn't really, uh, <laughs> it didn't really have any, you know, sort of recommendations to sort of, you know, how to improve it or anything, anything like that. Uh, and, and I thought it was great. It didn't need to be improved. So it was, uh, I was I was, you know, honored to have seen it before it was uh, published, and um, you know, uh, his his contribution to the uh, last empire of Iran book that I wrote was that he drew my attention to a couple of uh, articles that I referenced uh, there, and he very graciously read uh, a version of it that I sent him and he tweeted about it and, you know, gave a little review. Uh, and, uh, you know, that helped, helped attract uh, mm-hmm. some attention to it. And, you know, I was very, I was very flattered that he, uh, that, that he took such an interest in it. But unfortunately we've never actually met. It's just, just mm-hmm. entirely, entirely an epiphenomenon of Twitter. <laughs> Twitter seems to ha- be excellent at producing those kinds of epiphenomenon. Um, that's a that's a great story. For what it's worth, the the point you make around uh, if we really want to understand the quote unquote multiculturalism of the past, it's the way to do so is not in any way to try to bring to bear our 
frame of multiculturalism, like the, mm. like, like the kind of classic Canadian frame of multiculturalism of what it means when all these cultures meet in a particular place, but to actually expand your study of history. Uh, I, had a, I had a similar experience in university that I spent a lot of time studying uh, Chinese history and East Asian history, and I found that to be an uh, incredibly rewarding intellectual experience. And so it really resonates with me. Uh, the way that you the way that you put that yeah I, I think that i think that that is exactly right exactly expand expand our knowledge of history rather than sort of trying to pro, rather than a back projection of contemporary you know content, contemporary i was going to say prejudices it's not always prejudices but sometimes it is but you know, contemporary notions about the way the world should be as opposed mm. to, or the way it happens to be now as opposed to the way it actually was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my, my next question is a bit long, so I hope you'll forgive me for that. Um, do, uh, do you know uh, Spengler, the decline of the <laughs> Occident? I'm afraid so, yes. Yes. Okay, <laughs> good. I'm, I'm glad that you put the afraid so. Okay, so... Uh, so I'm currently reading this uh, for a, a book club that I'm part of. And, you know, like, I guess you could say Spengler has some fascinating things to say. And he's got these like grand theories about the grand narrative arcs of culture and civilizations. On the whole, personally, though, I just can't, I can't stand him. Mm -hmm. um, like, it's kind of like I'm enjoying reading it, but he's so loose with the truth. Uh, you know, I know a little bit about Chinese history and I'm, not that far into the book, but he hasn't yet said a true fact about Chinese yeah. history, as far as I can tell. And he's had a few. Um, yeah. And, you know, on the other hand, though, I have picked up plenty of history books that get so lost in simply being a collection of kind of lifeless facts that they really have nothing interesting to say at all. Mm. You know, I, and I actually can't keep reading them. Um, whereas even though I kind of hate Spengler, I can actually keep reading him because he's interesting. Yes. Um, and so I really wanted, what I really wanted to ask you was, you know, how do you as a historian navigate between these two poles so that you, know, you aren't making claims that future generations of historians will come along and just call, oh, that's nonsense and, and just kind of like debunk everything you say. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time are saying things that are actually interesting and bold enough to be worth reading. Mm -hmm. Great question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, what got me hooked on Spengler was his opening, the, the opening of the book where he starts saying that <laughs> he basically says that the Egyptians were very keen on history and that they really had a sense of the past, but that the classical world didn't. And Thucydides thought that nothing important had ever happened before he wrote about his war and then nothing important would happen after, which is in a sense that is true. He does say something that could be construed that way. And, you know, the, the, when classical historians are writing what they call history, it isn't what we mean when we say history, we think about the very remote past or at least something that happened before as history. Uh, they thought of it as more like current events and especially 
high politics and warfare that had happened, you know, usually within living memory, which is why they prized oral accounts so much. And you, you even have this tradition long into the Byzantine period whereby people are going out of their way to conceal the fact that there are written documents behind what they're saying because they want to cultivate the appearance that they are being like, that they are part of the Thucydidean tradition of, of history and ascribing things to sort of mm. autopsy and, and oral accounts by eyewitnesses, right? Which is not obvious, obviously, you know, that's not always going to work. But I do think that he's, I, I think that he's got that kind of wrong. I mean, Thucydides does write about the ancient period of, of you know, archaic Greece before, right after the Bronze Age collapse. So it's not entirely right. But I found that that was such a hook. I just thought that that, 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 really, that really worked for me. But then he said, I recall Spengler says that he thought that Leonardo's unfinished sketch of the visitation of the Magi was the greatest work of art ever produced in all of human. I just, I just, I thought that that was just. I mean, it's good, but it's not that good. So I thought that it was going a little bit too far. But to to answer your question, um, what is it about? You know, how do I approach history to avoid those two pitfalls? Well, you have to have a system of, I think, I think you have to have a system of, of thought or some kind of set of assumptions that will structure your facts, right? You have to have some way of an, a, analyzing all of them, putting them in some kind of uh, orderly structure, and of course, you also have to have facts. It can't be just one or the other. When it's just, if it's just some kind of like abstraction about, you know, symbols or or uh, you know meanings of, of of things, you don't have that sort of hard, you know, substance. That a hard foundation of fact that mm. that sort of you know, makes it make sense. But if you have only just a kind of jumble of facts or in a short article, only one fact nowadays, um, you know, there's no sense of how it connects to anything or what it actually means. So, you know, in the case of, in the case of Sasanian history, which I wrote about, most recently you know my vision you know i want I, I began the book trying to articulate some vision of what sasanian history was or what it meant mm. and i i view it as a sort of continuation of the you know near eastern tradition of civilization that after many many thousands of years that the Sasanian family comes to inherit this kind of vision of a sedentary empire, which developed over a long period of time and took its first, you know, great shape in the Achaemenid world under Cyrus the Great. And it's sort of the Sasanian mission to sort of hold, try to reassemble that and sort of hold it together. 
and that everything else they do can be sort of understood within that sort of frame, including things like trying to sort of hold back the barbarians coming out of the steppe and, and hold its own against Rome and so forth. Um, and, you know, many, maybe a lot of people disagree with that. I'm sure there are people who do. Uh, but that's how the facts are organized. That is, this, that is the sort of overarching uh, vision that I had of the uh, Sasanian state. And, I mean, one of the reasons why I think it works is that it was taken over again by the Arabs. And that you mm. still have, like, the, the, the vision of a, of, a, of a sort of unitary uh, caliphate is still basically Darius III's empire just on a slightly larger scale mm -hmm. no, no, no just sort of wait for all the sort of like vehement attacks criticizing but that that is i think that that's ultimately true and that shows the in that, that uh, to me that shows where the sasanian state sort of fits in into a sort of larger scene of of history and it shows its sort of continuity with the past and how it informed um, you know, what came after it. Mm -hmm. I think Spengler is trying to do something like that, but it's just, there's just too much. And, you know, the, I mean, like there, there's too much that he doesn't know also. Like the historiography of a lot of the world's history had not really been done by mm -hmm. when he wrote. And of course, he's overcome by this sort of vision of, of humiliation and decline, you know, between the two wars. Right. Yeah. I think that there is something to um, it's fascinating what he says about, you know, this like kind of like Western Faustian vision of 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 uh, what's the word? Uh, infinite space and things like that. And, you know, I guess that makes a kind of sense um, in when you look at a lot of art or, you know, when. Elon Musk talks about moving to Mars, whatever. But the problem with that is, I think, obviously, is that it explains every conceivable thing. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like there's nothing that, there's no way to, to, to test it. it. Just sort of, you, you've got everything explained right from the beginning. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. And the... I think the story that you just told about how how you managed this for uh, the the last empire of Iran that that makes a lot of sense to me. It, it feels like you know it's it's compelling enough to read, and um, it uh, but but it's something that relies on an I guess I, like, I, I liked your phrasing a set of assumptions that brings in the set of facts rather than. Um, a, a narrative where some facts are kind of like sprinkled along, something like that. Um, I, I think it's, it makes a lot of sense. I actually, it ties really nicely into uh, the the kind of the last question that I wanted to ask you, which is, uh, you've got this new book coming out, um, and you just talked about civilization uh, and kind of how you see uh, the, um, the I, I'm going to say the name word, the Sassanid um, Empire, kind of fitting yeah. into this story of civilization. What what led to this book? Like what, what, uh, how I, obviously I, this prior research has 
you know, mm -hmm. brought it up somehow, but kind of what led you to write this book and um, yeah, what's it about? Uh, well, this is the sort of, it's so much easier to describe it, you know, in writing than it is to talk about. So it's, I'm still perfecting the, the talking part. Um, so yeah, it is about civilization. Um, but let me tell you first what it is not about. Mm -hmm. I think that's sometimes a wise way of proceeding. I don't have any... I don't have any time for the you know, the kind of thing where people think people argue that civilization is is based on you know some sense some some kind of vision of technological progress and advancement and you know uh, I think Niall Ferguson talks about like the, the West's killer apps and and things like that I I don't, I don't have any interest in that and and I and I think that it's it's um, not really what I mean when I say civilization. I wanted to think more about, you know, what it actually was rather than, um, you know, try some kind of justification for what we do and the way we do it now. You know, maybe, maybe we are no longer civilized. You know, that, that's a possibility. Uh, that I think some people are unwilling to confront. But um, so what is civilization? Well, the old idea <clears throat> that there's some kind of like agricultural revolution and some change in economics and sort of the, the mode of production. And so I, I, that's not true. That has been, that has been refuted. And the, the reason we know it isn't true, first of all, the person, Vera Gordon Child, came out, he was a Marxist. Like, this is he, like the idea that there are these, you know, the sort of revolutions that ha happen throughout history, you know, that, that's just a Marxist way of viewing the world. And I think, you know, it hasn't really um, held up well on, on, in, in its own right. But the evidence isn't there for it. What, what the evidence that we do have is that moving from the upper Paleolithic to sort of Neolithic settled life, you find that settled life happens long before agriculture develops. And why does settled life happen? Well, the, that is a complex question to answer, but the way we should answer it is by looking at the evidence. And the evidence is that people have settled down around essentially uh, communal religious sites in the Near East, um, maybe about 9,000 years ago is the first earliest evidence of this at a place called Göbekli Tepe in southern Turkey. And you find that there is something going on there that is probably a cult of ancestors skull cult reflected elsewhere throughout the Near East, whereby the ancestor's skull is preserved and decorated and cherished for generations in a fixed place, in a communal religious site or in a dwelling. And similarly, 
and a bit, bit later on, you have the site at uh, Çatal Höyük, also in Turkey, where you have all these interconnected houses. And inside the houses, you have um, hearths, sort of shrines or old altars or something, and wall art. And below the, below the houses, you have the burial of ancestors that remains sort of consistent and it's, it's done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. At the same time, these dwellings have their, uh, they get totally demolished and then rebuilt exactly as they were with the hearth in the same place, the shrine in the same place and the wall art going back exactly as it was every few generations. So what does this add up to? And what does it tell us about civilization? To me, and other, I mean, I'm, I was going to say other anthropologists, not anthropologists, but to, to people who actually study this, what it seems to mean is that you have the development of a sense that there is a shared past, that there is a fixed place where people should live, where there are common ancestors of, uh, of interconnected families, households. And there was apparently no such belief before. We, there's no evidence of this in the Paleolithic time, although there is lots of art. There's no evidence, doesn't reflect any of this kind of, kind of thing at all. Um, so again, civilization was produced by this sense of a shared history, shared past, common ancestry and living, you know, accordingly. It's that simple. There's no, uh, or as I say, as, as I see it, it's that simple. There's no sense of technology or um, a mode of production or anything like that. And that um, as this belief, uh, this outlook has taken hold, the hunter-gathering economy is still going on. It's fading away slowly, but it's still going on. And it's much later that farming and states and you know bureaucracies and all this monumental architecture, all this stuff that people used to say were requirements of civilization, that they come much later comparatively in, in the uh, evolution of our species. So by my reckoning, you can create civilization anywhere, in any place, in practically any context. It doesn't require any particular, you know, external input or technological uh, advancement. It's more like an outlook or a, a, a vision of humanity's place in the world, which was which was not, which was either lacking or undeveloped in um, Paleolithic times. So um, this civilized outlook or whatever, I argue it takes, you know, we can, we can see it take full shape, let's say fully developed, mature, whatever word you like, in Old Kingdom Egypt, because that is, that's the earliest we see it. And I look at 
I look at the material culture of, of Old Kingdom Egypt and I see three results of civilization. And they're not, not causes, not, you know, they're, they're more like byproducts. And they are a sense of clarity, a sense of beauty, and a sense of order. Now, what do I mean by these things? So clarity is the idea that you can, the human beings can see the world clearly, and then they can express um, thoughts, feelings about it to others. They can be, uh, can be understood. They can be uh, perceived and made, uh, made clear to others. This takes shape, I argue, in the presentation of Egyptian hieroglyphs, or really in any early writing, because it was all pictographic. Right, you're you're literally you're literally depicting what you see clearly, you know, unambiguously, um, recording the passage of time, the names of kings, all the stuff that impressed Spengler so much. Beauty, beauty is not when I when I use it in this sense, it it it, it is not. I'm not meaning what we mean now conventionally when we say beauty. The the older civilized sense of it is a sense of harmonious proportion that you find in in very ancient art and architecture and i'm very much hung up on the so-called egyptian canon which is the the artistic sense of um drawing persons animals and plants according to um, a fixed set of proportions and measurements right um, people used to think that these that the canon was very rigid and you know, sort of inflexible over three thousand years. That isn't true. It, it did vary, but the point is that the older sense of beauty comes from a sense of measurement and proportion, and and you find that everywhere, not just in Egypt, but that's that's basically a kind of universal principle, and and it is ultimately what informs Pythagoras with his vision of like measurement and numbers and um, you know the, the sense that harmony applies both to the visual world and to music. Um, finally, order. The sense uh, that you see in depictions of nature uh, and of you know political and religious symbols, that there is that there is that there is a principle or principles of organization that apply to human beings and to animals and plants and to the world in general, both visible and invisible. So the, the visible one would be you know, in the same way that you see bees going about their business and so forth, you know, there must be something, must be some similar organizing principle for us, you know, seems rational. Um, and for the unseen world, this is religion. Um, or what we call religion. Okay, so that's how I boil it down, and these three things become sort of rubrics for discussing um, what I see as a kind of sorry, <laughs> sorry state of our own civilization. But before we get there, um, I have to prove first of all that you know not only is there this thing civilization, which I think I do, but also that it is, uh, as I see it, very fragile, 
prone to collapse, which happens more often than not, but that it is also somehow at the same time capable of renewal. And this is the critical part. How does it get renewed? Or at least, you know, if not necessarily renewed, at least sort of transmitted or passed on. Well, there is a principle that I see, or maybe it's not a principle, but it's or at least like a trend that um, the civilizations collapse, and then people attempt to imitate whatever is sort of left of them. And you know that may seem banal, and I guess there's a sense in which it is. But you know, if that weren't true, then after the first collapse, you know there would have been no further civilization. But it, I think it gets a little bit more profound or at least slightly less banal. When you think of the old stereotype that the Greeks, as we say, were you know, believed to be these sort of bold innovators and sort of you know, rugged individualists who copied nobody and who invented everything, that's not true. It's not even remotely true. It has no... Uh, there, there's not even a shred of evidence for it. And when you read the, the literature of the Greeks that, you know, that they themselves produced, even starting with the Iliad or the, you know, um, the Homeric hymns or, or you know, the works and days of, of Hesiod or the, you know, the, the very, very earliest stuff, these people are obsessed with uh, Near Eastern myth. Near, near Eastern methods of doing everything. They even adopted their alphabet. They, uh, they adopted a huge amount of vocabulary from, from the old mm. world. Now, of course, it's very important to remember uh, or acquaint ourselves with the fact that Homer is looking back. Look, Homer is not evidence that the people who produced Homer were what I mean by civilized. These things are distant reminiscences of a world that had collapsed, the Bronze Age. And the Iliad and more so the Odyssey preserve this sort of memory of the old aristocratic culture of the, of the, of, you know, the high, high culture of the Bronze Age. Whereas the people then living are, you know, they're obsessed with, status and prowess and, and, and sort of, you know, war prizes, uh, booty, sex slaves, ghosts, cannibals, you know, the, 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 the world in which the, the, the world that produced these is a world of, of barbarism and darkness. And you can see it also in the tragedies of, of Aeschylus. Um, they are looking back to an age of, of, of a high civilization after it had vanished. And you find this also at the beginning of Thucydides. Very briefly, he talks about this archaic age where it was full of pirates and nobody lived in a single place and farming wasn't worth the trouble and stuff like that, right? So where did they get their ideas from? They are reviving the relics of a high culture, often Mesopotamian, sometimes Egyptian, um, that was brought to them by Phoenician traders in service to the what we call the Neo-Assyrian state. 
that was eventually replaced by the Neo-Babylonian state. And um, it is the Phoenicians who maintained this connection, however dim or however tenuous, with um, the old the old world, which informed the Greeks, and then the Etruscans. And of course, the Phoenicians themselves go off and found this colony at Carthage. And it's Carthage as the sort of offspring of the old world that eventually knits the Mediterranean together, or most of it, if not all, in this sort of into a unit. And it's this unit that is, in, that is inherited by this group of upstarts on a sort of muddy uh, set of hills in the middle of the Tiber that we call Rome. This backwater from, you know, completely unpromising place, right? So if it weren't for the Roman obsession with imitating Etruscan cultural models and, and, and then that introduced them to, you know, sort of Greek ones that are ultimately derived from imitation of the Assyrian heritage and courtly life and so forth. And they're replace, re replacing, you know, exchanging them, themselves with Carthage and they just sort of savagely destroy and taking over all of those, you know, relationships established by, by Phoenician tradesmen. There's no, there's really nothing to, there, there would be nothing to speak about. What's, there'd be no significance whatsoever to whatever we mean by Romanness, right? And the Romans themselves, I think that they had some trouble acknowledging this. Mm. They were very keen on talking about Greek, you know, you, you measured your, your learning and pro aristocratic uh, status and so forth by your acquaintance with Greek learning for a long time. But you would never suggest that you owed something to Carthage if you were a well-to-do, right-thinking Roman. There was some kind of weird rivalry uh, and sort of insecurity, rivalry, rivalry with and insecurity about the Etruscans, I think, because, you know, the, the, Rome, the Roman state is ostensibly ruled by Etruscans for a long time, which makes makes everybody really uncomfortable looking back on it. And you see historians who are sort of trying to work around that. Um, but I think that the, the, there's, you know, the, the, a lot of Romans would have known that, that Etruscan models are sort of lurking behind a lot of the stuff that they do and did. Notably, their own alphabet, a lot of their words, are, a lot of Latin words come from or through Etruscan. So this idea that, you know, the classical world is this great period of innovations, or they just completely reject that, which is not to say they don't have their own merits on their own, but, you know, very few, I, 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 I would say. And so, you know, if, if anybody's going to come out of the woodwork and accuse me of being sort of, you know, pleading for Roman supremacy or something, it's definitely definitely not not that so by the time um the roman state has collapsed in the west the process then starts over you have these barbarians who are saying no no no, no. we are we are romans now 
We are continuing the legacy of Augustus and, and Constantine. We're going to talk Latin now. We're going to revive all the ceremonies of the, the old um, Roman court. And this carries on with sort of fits and starts, you know, for, for a very long time. And it is arguable that, you know, it ultimately, that the, this custom ultimately is using what we call the Renaissance. Meanwhile, in other parts of the world, and for you know, long in the past, this same thing is unfolding much more rapidly and much more frequently. So from you know, the earliest days of Sumer and Akkad, you have these succession of states in which each one claims to be the revival of the last one. Mm. To the point where the Persian king, Cyrus, who conquers the Neo-Babylonian state, is calling himself the king of Sumer and Akkad, which would have been, I think there's more distance between him and Sumer and Akkad than there is between him and us. But the, the old traditions are still at least being uh, paid lip service to, and that Cyrus's own propaganda is reflecting these very, very, very ancient, um, you know, um, Babylonian um, ideas, quoting their their ancient texts and so forth. So that this, you know, this Persian guy or Median or whoever he called himself, you know, the, he's he's the successor to he's the successor to Sargon and and Hammurabi. That's that's how he wanted to be thought of. And then, you know, you find it repeated eventually with the the Arabs claiming to be effectively the successors to the Sasanian Sasanian and Roman uh, rule, rule, uh, you know, to Caesar and to uh, um, Khosrowes. And... um, Successive Chinese dynasties are doing roughly the same kind of thing. And of course, in my book, the the figure of uh, Confucius looms large as the sort of, you know, the the great symbol of a a man who sees himself as the transmitter of a very ancient, um, you know, vision of political and, and, and religious order in the state of Zhou, which he's obsessed with. He refuses to be thought of as an innovator. He hates it. And he, you know, his his vision of of idealized order and so forth was so in so influential that the you know the conquerors of China repeatedly become you know good solid Confucians. Right? So I don't know. Maybe some of this may sound kind of banal or something, but but it's like or or obvious, but I think we need to be reminded of it. Now, the other part of the book is that I have a kind of a dim view, uh, as you may have guessed. I I have something of a dim view of Western developments after the Middle Ages. Um, The Renaissance is is where a kind of bifurcation happens. That you have, on the one hand, you have people like, you know, you you have the trend to sort of write only, you know, people swearing oaths to write Latin exactly as Cicero did and, you know, disavowing any words unless they could be found in Cicero and, you know, recycling, uh, you know, 
re recycling phrases and 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 letter writing techniques as though you you know as though you were alive at the end of the Roman Republic and people like Alberti, whose Latin was so good that it was mistaken, uh, you know, his plays or whatever were mistaken for classical um, productions and so forth. But then you also have people like Petrarch who created a kind of fantasy world about the past and who were disappointed. Petrarch was, Petrarch was disappointed that Cicero, whom he otherwise loved so much, was a man of action as and uh, involved in politics as opposed to you know purely absorbed within his own thoughts and this is a trend that i think develops slowly but steadily to the point where we are now in which the sense of um personal distinction or sort of individual um, characteristics or peculiarities have triumphed over any sense of sort of shared uh, shared humanity, uh, common heritage, or, you know, universal, any kind of sense of like a uni universal humanity, right? And, you know, you even, there are people like, Montaigne, the philosopher Montaigne, who you know locked himself in a tower, just sort of with his classical books and you know, didn't want to come out, um, or Descartes, who, or eventually Rousseau, who are so absorbed in their own private thoughts that that you know they they portray private inner reflection as the only source of solid knowledge. Now, I don't think that that's true. Uh, I, mean, I, 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 I don't think that it's even remotely plausible, but it was very, these are very influential ideas even now. And I think you probably sense that based on the definition that I gave of civilization, that the, this outlook is not compatible with it. That it militates against any kind of sense of shared um, shared history, a common past, shared ancestry, or even the view, it militates even against the view that the past is even important. If And, and it easily gives way to the idea that the past is uniformly evil and should be forgotten, which starts to take shape um, during the Reformation, and then comes to uh, um, comes to a head in the 18th century, and you know, I don't I don't indulge too much the sort of ultra you know ultra conservative views of the French Revolution or the American Revolution, whereby you know like it's very easy to it's very easy to portray these things as a sort of radical break with the past and you know the source of all our woes and everything you know it's very easy to do that i don't really indulge that too much but i think i think that that view is essentially right that the outlook that turns away from the past culminates in attempting to sort of refashion the world and it doesn't work 
I mean, like it or not, we're sort of, I mean, I, I just think it would be better for us to admit that even though there are bad things in the past, that we're just sort of stuck with it. And that we have to try, again, as we talked about history earlier, we have to try to make, come to terms with it mm. uh, and, you know, at least make peace with it and learn to learn to live with it because we cannot, you know, we just, we just cannot, um, we cannot cut ourselves off from it as much as we try and bad things happen when we do. So, you know, there's a kind of depressing chapter in the middle of the book when I sort of go through everything that I think went wrong. Yeah. And um, I guess the only, the, the, the one thing that I would want to emphasize there is that I think that the problem started long before. I mean, a lot of conservative people, you know, they'll say things like, well, you know, the 50s, you know, everything, everything started to go wrong at the end of the 50s. No, no. These trends are much longer and deeper and um you know uh they take longer to take shape and to have full uh effect mm. um then in the middle of the book there's this kind of exposition of those three rubrics clarity beauty and order and i talk about you know sort of what what i discern is sort of very ancient view on, on these things, how this took shape in art and literature, and then how they, I would say, deteriorated in more modern times. The part of this that I personally find the most engaging, or at least the least depressing, is the part about art in, in beauty. So I don't think that there's any kind of, you know, sinister plot or any, there's nothing... Um, Nothing that uh, is impossible to explain about what happened to what happened in Western art. You know, artists are extremely sensitive to the way their culture views the universe. That may sound crazy, but I think it's it's, it's ultimately true. And if you look at the impact of um, 20th century or you know late 19th century and 20th century physics on the world of art, you can see there's this massive disruption caused by Einstein and, um, you know, the development of quantum mechanics and then the tension between relativity and, and quantum mechanics and it, eventually chaos theory and things like that, that artists are just really sort of drawn to and they're trying to depict they're trying to represent a world that they feel that is unintelligible, erratic, um, that it is uh, disorderly, chaotic, uh, ultimately unknowable, and, and fundamentally weird. It's that simple. Now, mm. I am not a physicist, but you, I mean, I, I think I can see and articulate a big difference between the assumption of someone like Pythagoras and his ancient antecedents whereby the world was structured according to harmonious proportion and the idea that there's no structure at all or the structures don't make sense or like the structure of the, you know the structure on the subatomic level and that on a higher level or sort of fundamentally intention 
uh, and it's not going to get resolved until there's some change in our understanding of physics or in the in the in the um, structure of the universe. So again, you have to take this, I guess, with a grain of salt from someone who's not a physicist or a mathematician. But if something, you know, if if there is ever a grand theory of everything, like superstring theory or whatever that gets proven, that har harmonizes these, you know, tensions or eliminates these sort of um, problems raised by 20th century physics, we will have a very different kind of art. And it will be much more similar to um, ancient art, I argue, um, because the perception of the structure of the world and the universe will have changed. So, um, oh, I should add another thing. There's a chapter on China, which will probably irritate some people, but the, the, um, the reason why I highlight China in the book is that um, it's a fascinating paradox between sort of ultra-modern industrial economy now, it wasn't always like that, obviously, or wasn't always like that in my own lifetime. Um, but it's like that now. But there has also been a huge revival of, of um, Confucianism and the, you know, sort of traditional um, Chinese religions after the um, destructions of the Cultural Revolution. And, you know, I go through the whole, I go through the whole history of that. And, and, and you know, my case here is that China and the West now suffer fundamentally from the same problems of hyper-materialism, sort of deracination, dislocation, sort of feeling of being cut off from the past and being sort of, you know, cast into this sort of disorderly world of uncertainty and ever-changing technology and so forth. But um, for better or for worse, China seems to be trying harder to find some kind of solution. Now, part of their solution, I think, is not going to work, which is the sort of surveillance state and so forth. The Confucian revival and the, um, you know, making peace with the Chinese past, I think, is ultimately a good example to follow. Well, I can't wait to read the book now. Um, the idea that you're bringing up there of the continuation of civilization happening in these inaccurate but high agency, let's say, attempts to imitate previous civilization, and there's this kind and there's this kind of constant bootstrapping, like kind of continual bootstrapping of new civilizations off of the back of this kind of failed imitation failed in some sense it worked because the civilization continues um that's such a fascinating idea and i do love this I, I don't know if this is precisely what you're saying but it's it seems like that is almost um the process that confucius makes explicit that is yes. that is almost his philosophy is making that process explicit and so um that that is a really interesting 
it's a really interesting idea. I, I am really excited to read about it. I'll, I'll give you a copy. I'll make sure you get one. Oh, I, I would love that. That would be amazing. Um, I'll definitely take you up on that. Um, so we've, we've ended up going way past our, uh, our original time, um, but this has been an absolutely lovely conversation. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, no, and thank you for giving me so much time. Uh, it's been a pleasure.